Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. And uh, you seem more eager than my usual crowd in the morning. That, I don't know if I mentioned to you I was teaching, this is some years ago, and uh, I was really into my lesson. I was thinking I was doing a great job, being very eloquent, didactic, and I heard this from the back of the classroom. And I looked back and a student had fallen asleep and his head had tipped back and hit the back wall of the, of the room. So it was a needed dose of humility. True, yes. At least I don't let my students sit in the window. So I do teach on the third floor. Hmm? It did. It woke up the student. I, I don't know whether he was embarrassed or not, but anyway. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it illuminates every part of our lives. We thank you for giving us uh, a country in which we have a considerable degree of freedom to interact with others um, in marketplaces and elsewhere. We're going to look at marketplaces today, and we pray that you will give us wisdom in, in that area, but help us to see how we might be used uh, to bless the lives of others um, in whatever capacity you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, had spent the first week of our short series here um, giving you what I, I hope was an introduction to how a Christian can think about economics, which is my field, and economics is a, it's a study of prudence, really. It's a study of how we can be wise with the resources that we've been entrusted with which we've been entrusted. And it's a study of that stewardship that we all find ourselves in, whether we are uh, materially wealthy or materially poor, we all have resources. At the very least, we have our bodies that we are responsible to God for. And so we talked a little bit about that stewardship. And then uh, last week, in the second week, we looked at how Christians can think about prices um, and, and interest. And uh, I wanted to wrap up that discussion today with a, a few comments about how Luther and Calvin thought about those things, and then spend some time looking at how markets function. I'm not gonna get into anything technical here. I'm gonna ask that you think about how we uh, can use the uh, functioning of markets to be better stewards. And um, we may talk about a few other things if, if time permits. Um, so over the last week and a half, I suppose, we've been watching with some uh, concern, I suppose, the, the, out, out, the, the, the fallout of the uh, pipeline uh, shut down 
the colonial pipeline that provides something like 45% of the fuels to the southeast and the mid-Atlantic was shut down because of a, of a, uh, a hack. And I don't know all the details of how exactly that came to pass, but they had to shut down the pipeline. And of course, that means that gas stations ran out within a matter of a couple of days. And um, the governor of South Carolina, uh, among many other political figures, I think Biden also um, said some things about price gouging. You know, we're not going to tolerate price gouging. We have laws against price gouging. We, well, uh, in encouraging people to only get gasoline if they needed it and, and so forth. Um, and of course, that brings in, into our minds some things about just prices, because the whole concept of price gouging has a moral dimension to it. We're concerned about prices being higher than they normally are, and we, we attach that, that kind of uh, moral, um, uh, that, well, the moral dimension to that, to that higher price, and we say, well, that's, that's wrong for retailers to raise their price on a product that so many people need when there's a natural disaster or where there's an emergency of some kind. And we've seen this living in South Carolina before. I've lived through four or five hurricanes. The most recent was last summer, which came a little close for comfort. But um, after a natural disaster, after a hurricane, we typically see um, state governments putting up 1-800 numbers, call us if you see anyone charging higher than normal prices for generators, plywood, chainsaws, ice, the kinds of things that people need after a, after a disaster. So um, where do we find in Scripture a command that prices may not be posted that are higher than normal? Yes. I've gotten very far fetched on this too. I think it's very much I agree. Um, and um, perhaps there was, I believe, condemnation of farmer who was putting all his grain in the warehouse. There's yes. Right. So there's there's that that of course. So that would kind of be against just Yeah, so there there's there's that there's that passage that says that the one who holds back grain will be condemned, but he who sells his grain will be um, praised or you know, highly regarded publicly. Um, which says nothing about prices. It just says, you know, the person who says, well, you know, I want to plant next season, so I need to have my grain for next season to plant. I'm not going to sell it. That person will be condemned. Now, I, maybe this is parsing the words a little too carefully, but I would say, or unnecessarily, um, uh, I don't know, it's my reading of that, that it is not saying it is wrong. It is simply stating the fact that it will not get you any friends. 
So if you hold your grain back, expect people to be upset with you. It doesn't mean you're wrong for doing it, but expect people to be upset with you. Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple. Was that because of the price or because of the location of the sale? Okay. What? Hmm? Yes, we're going to actually get to some of that. I'm not sure if it's going to be today or, or maybe uh, next week. There, there's a, a requirement that we have a fair um, balance. That is, a pound is a pound, an ounce is an ounce, a gallon is a gallon. We know what that is, and if you go to a gas station and you fill up with 15 gallons, you know what that amount is. You're not going to get what you thought was, was 14. So the command there with just balances, again, doesn't say anything about the price. It says when you sell someone an ounce, it needs to be what everyone understands an ounce to be, rather than being something that is... Um, uh, lighter because you wanted to cheat them. It says don't have two weights in your bag. Don't have a heavy ounce and a light ounce uh, or a heavy shekel and a light shekel uh, because that's, that's cheating. Uh, when you're buying, you're using the heavy shekel and when you're selling, you're using the light shekel. I mean, that, you don't want to use two different weights for two different kinds of transactions. Be consistent so that you're not cheating. Frankly, I'm not seeing anywhere in Scripture where a higher price in a time where there's an emergency is regarded as a sin. Now, I may be wrong on that, but I'm not seeing it anywhere. We have to be very careful not to say Scripture says something that it doesn't say. Yes? Yes, and when I'm, when I'm explaining a lot of this about, about prices to my classes, I'm talking about that dimension of things where, okay, the price system has these kinds of salutary effects. Here, I'm looking at the moral dimension. So we're saying, is it wrong? I mean, regardless of whatever the, you can say that it has this positive effect on the market or capital development or encourages people to conserve the resource when it's higher priced or, and discourages people from filling up their Rubbermaid containers with gasoline. I mean, that, that kind of thing is discouraged with higher prices, sure, but we can't take from that that it's necessarily moral. It might help us with good stewardship, but there may be some other part of Scripture where we have to say, well, we're going to put the brakes on that because... And I'm asking because why? So, yes.
I think there are a couple of ways to approach that argument, and one is the moral argument that says this is how far the civil government, the civil magistrate may go. This is its jurisdiction. This is what it has authority over. And outside of that, it does not. And that's, that's a difficult, or I should say complicated kind of argument in many ways. Uh, the other argument you can make is kind of a pragmatic, well, markets have these positive impacts on us, and if left alone, we will grow, grow richer. But um, I'm trying to focus on the, on the first part of that because there seems to be a, a nice little dividing line between the moral and the pragmatic argument. I think there's a lot of compatibility. I mean, I, I, I see where obeying scripture with regard to the domain of the civil magistrate versus private decisions um, does have positive real-world effects on us. It can make us better off if we follow, um, follow uh, scripture on these kinds of earthly choices that we make. Let's, let's look, though, at what Luther and Calvin said about these things. I think that the, the teachings of the church on markets has improved in some ways. Uh, we see some light from Calvin and from Luther and their and, and associated um, theologians and scholars, and we see some mistakes that they made that I think have been corrected. Um, Luther was not terribly interested in economics. He's not known for that, uh, but he did at least defend the concept of private property on the basis of the commandment against theft. He was a little inconsistent on economics. He condemned one who, quote, makes use of the market in his own willful way, proud and defiant, as though he had a good right to sell at as high a price as he chose and none could interfere, end quote. While elsewhere, he said that, quote, anyone may sell what he has for the highest price he can get, so long as he cheats no one. And cheating would be the use of false weights and measures, um, telling somebody that you're selling them a pound of grain when you're really only selling them 15 ounces. Um, so uh, Gary North, writing in an article on the economic thought of Luther and Calvin, says that Given this willingness on the part of Luther to reverse many earlier pronouncements that he formerly had penned, it is not surprising that his economic utterances should display an overall lack of coherence through the years. Um, uh, Luther did say, um, Next to thine own person and thy wedded wife, thy worldly goods stand closest to thee, and God desires that they shall be secured to thee, and therefore commands that no one shall take away or lessen any portion of his neighbor's possessions. For stealing means the unlawful approbation or taking of another's goods, or to give it briefly, to derive any sort of advantage from thy neighbor's disadvantage. Now, this is a very common sort of vice. Now, I would not have said it like that, especially that last part where he says, derive any sort of advantage from the neighbor's disadvantage, because that can be easily mis misunderstood, I think. And I, 
And again, I, I think Luther is somewhat incoherent on this point because to say that it is wrong to derive any sort of advantage from a neighbor's disadvantage means you can't sell anything to anyone because anyone who buys something from you is trying to fill in some gap that they have. I'm hungry, so I go buy food. Does that mean that they're wrong for selling me food because they're getting an advantage out of selling me food? Is it wrong for me to, is it wrong for a doctor to charge me for a visit uh, when I'm sick because it's only because I'm sick that the doctor is able to make a living? Um, and I, I, I think that's a, you know, the bulk of scripture weighs against that where we see scripture in scripture time and again people buying and selling and buying and selling and there's no condemnation on that except where it occurs with some sort of cheating or where it occurs in the wrong place like in a church where people are um, uh, this is is not to be a marketplace we saw um, that uh, colorful um, illuminating example of, of Christ overchanging the money changers tables uh, that was not the place for that sort of thing. There may also have been some cheating going on where people from out of town who don't know um, uh, how to uh, or don't know how to how to ensure that a transaction is taking place honestly are, are left at at a serious disadvantage. So Luther Luther wrote um, in in another place. Now it is fair and right that a merchant take as much profit on his wares as will reimburse him for their cost and compensate him for his trouble, his labor, and his risk. Um, Now, of course, there's a difficulty there, too, because how do we know how much that is? And uh, we've come to, many of us have come to think of profit as being a kind of a bad word that if you're making a profit, that is um, uh, taking from someone else and therefore morally suspect, if not um, outright wrong. And so many will say, well, a certain amount of profit is okay, but over a certain amount, that profit becomes uh, wrong. Um, Well, that's one of the key problems with, with just price theories, arguments ab- about how much interest can be charged, arguments about how much profit is, is, is uh, okay. It, there's no way to tell what it is. There's no way to, to tell when you have, have crossed some line when Scripture does not draw such a line. Um, the rule, according to, to Luther, he said... Um, uh, trade can be nothing more than robbing and stealing the property of others. The rule ought to be not, I may sell my wares as dear or as expensive as I can or will, but I may sell my wares as I ought or as right and fair. And again, the problem with that is how do you, how do you know how, where, where is that? Um, how do we know where that is? And does, does Scripture give us anything to suggest that we are not at liberty there? Um, if someone came to me and said, you know, we really, 
uh, this will never happen, but it, we really like the way you teach economics and we want you to come teach at our college and we'll pay you $3 million a year for that. Do I, do I get to say, or should I say then, well, that's, no, that's too much. Um, that's too much profit for me. Um, I, I have to turn you down. I mean, there's, there's nothing that, that, that says that's wrong. In fact, if we look at profit for what it is, it is the taking of the resources God has given us and turning them into something better and something more to increase, to take the land and the seed and the plow and the draft animal and to turn it into something better. And that the, the difference between what we put into and what we get out of is the profit. And uh, we, are, we are commanded to be good stewards. We see in the parable of the talents, which we'll reference later, the, uh, the increase of the master's wealth was regarded as a very good thing. Um, Luther on, on, on interest is, is also a bit confusing. He was generally opposed to interest. We talked about this a little bit last week. But he did not advocate the state, uh, the civil magistrate, abolishing interest. He said, it's, quote, a common plague that all have taken upon themselves. We must put up with it, therefore, and hold debtors to it. In practice, and this is really odd, I think, Luther said, well, anything under 5% is okay. Anything over 5% is, is usurious. Where did you get 5% from? And it's just like 5%. Sounds as good as anything. And again, we're, we're speaking where God has not spoken. We're, we're trying to make a rule that, and attach a morality to it that God has not uh, we saw last week that biblic biblically there are commands against usury, but that usury is not defined as interest over a certain amount. The, the, defining, the defining characteristic of usury in Scripture is charging interest of any amount to a poor fellow believer. That's, that's what usury is scripturally, and people have just twisted that and tried to apply it to other things. Um, we see elsewhere that it is permissible for a lender to take security for a loan, even for a uh, loan to someone who is poor. Uh, it's not interest, it's collateral, really. Um, Exodus 22, chapter, uh, chapter 22, verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people who, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So what did security, what was the function of the security? Well, for one thing, it prevented a person from going into more debt because it prevented them from using that item of 
that, that, that valuable asset as collateral for multiple loans. So if you, uh, the, the equivalent would be a pawn shop. You take something valuable to the pawn shop, this is collateral. You give me the money, if I come back after a certain period of time, I can get the collateral back and you get your money back. It's a collateralized loan. I think this is what's envisioned here. You can't take that asset to one lender and say, I, I'd like to borrow on the basis of this collateral and then you leave it with me and I'm gonna go over here to this lender and I'm gonna borrow on the basis of the same collateral and then do the same thing again and again and again so that now I have one cloak that is security for five different loans and then I'm really in trouble. So the security is um, partly a way to prevent people from overextending themselves in debt, but we're supposed to be compassionate. And if, if a person needs that cloak to sleep in, we let them have it. Uh, so there's mercy on top of mercy, not just in lending with no interest, but in lending uh, in a way that does not put that person into dire straits. So if I would say a modern example of this is, um, let's say you have a, um, an economic crisis and people are on, in, in hard times and uh, someone goes to a pawn shop with a tool that they have to have to do their business. Um, it, perhaps it would be best to say, no, you keep the tool because without the tool you can't earn your living and without you earning your living you can't pay the loan back. So if we're lending in, in, in that context, I think perhaps um, that might be one way to, to look at that today. We rarely have cases where someone is going to be cold at night if they lent. Uh, a cloak at this time would have been a, a very valuable thing. This is why we see, for example, the, the Roman soldiers gambling over Christ's clothing at the time of his crucifixion because clothing was so valuable. Fabric was extremely expensive and normally people would have only one or two um, garments, uh, uh, outer garments in particular. Turning to Calvin, um, Calvin was close to Luther on economic issues except for his views on usury. Uh, Calvin would have completely trashed the usury prohibition. Only in lending to the poor should interest not be charged. The medieval rules such as Luther's, by the way, that 5% interest contract became known as a German contract because it was so common in Lutheran areas. But Calvin said, no, we shouldn't have any restrictions whatsoever. Any legal maximum you have to obey because we obey the civil magistrate, but um, no limits morally on, on loans except for those to the poor. And oddly, he, though, he, he said no one should be a professional moneylender. So you can't be a banker if you're a Christian, according to Calvin. Um, but nevertheless, he, Calvin, you can see he's gradually moving more toward the, the position that uh, many Christians would have today where, you know, if you have a business loan that you make to someone, then there's no limit on, on interest morally. You can charge 4%, 40%, 
400%, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, a Dutch follower of Calvin named uh, Claude Saumaise, uh, who lived from 1588 to 1653, according to um, uh, Murray Rothbard, put the final boot to the usury prohibition. He didn't really come up with anything new, but he, he was finally consistent about usury. In fact, he went so far as to say, if you're a professional moneylender to the poor, that's okay. Um, and since, he said, uh, the interest rate falls as you have more moneylenders, then the more moneylenders, the better. Competition drives down interest rates, makes, makes things easier for everyone. So let's, th let's think a little bit about how, how markets function. I won't get into all the technical stuff here, although um, I have some resources that I'll share with you um, either next week or the, or the last week uh, that may help those of you that are interested in diving deeper in, into some of this. Um, but just some thoughts on how we can think about markets as, as Christians. And, and I, I, I don't want to overstate my own, um, my own views on this as opposed to uh, what we can directly derive from Scripture. So I'm going to sketch out some broad, broad principles that I think are, are, are clear. Prices in a marketplace are little bits of information. They're, they're data for us. And so we are, we are called to be prudent. We need to be wise as, as Christians in how we use our resources. Well, what does that mean? I mean, wisdom means that we're, we're taking the information that we have, we're processing that, and we're doing the best we can with the information that, we have, that, that, that we, is available to us. So economics, as I said earlier, is largely about prudence. It's about figuring out what course of action out of many legitimate moral courses of action we could take which one is best? There are many things that are allowable for us to do. We have liberty to do this line of work or that line of work, and if we choose to, uh, oh, picking something at random, make knife blades or scissor blades, um, there may be many ways to do that. We could buy a really big expensive machine to do that and have fewer workers but one big expensive machine, or we could have more workers and fewer machines, or we could have, th there are many ways to, to handle that production process. How do we do that wisely? And in order to do that, we have to know something about cost. Luke chapter 14, 28 through 30. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and, and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We, we're supposed to be counting the cost, which means we take advantage of that information that's, that's available to us. It's easier, I think, for us to wrap our heads around trades in physical goods and services, or, well, not physical services, but physical goods and the services that we do for other people. If I'm teaching um, 
I don't know, piano lessons, which would be a disaster, um, then uh, it's easy for us to kind of understand, okay, I'm providing a service, they're gaining knowledge, um, they pay me for my time that I expend in teaching. We understand that kind of transaction. It sort of makes sense to us, but there's some transactions and some kinds of markets that may not make a lot of it, uh, sense to us, and so it's common for us to be somewhat suspicious of these, of these markets and, and when we don't quite track with what they are accomplishing or how they're, how they're working. So let's look at one common question I think Christians have about investing versus gambling. Is it gambling to put money in the stock market? Is it gambling to buy Dogecoin? It, it, yeah, well, so what's, what's the line there between when I'm investing and when I'm gambling? What's the, is there a difference between putting $500 into Dogecoin and going to Las Vegas and plugging quarters into the one-armed bandit, is that, is there a difference there? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> yes, so I mean, it's, it's worth a thought, right? We need to think, think a little bit about this. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes 11, first six verses. And I'm, I'm reading from the ESV here, so if you've got a different version, there may be a few wording differences. All of my quotations are from the ESV. So um, It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And you can get this image of people taking sunbeam bread and throwing it in the ocean. It was, okay, not really what he means. Uh, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good." So there's an acknowledgement there that there's risk in investing and casting your bread upon the waters. I think Solomon's referring to the sending of grain away on ships in, in international trade. And off go the ships. They might sink. The grain may rot. I don't know. But pirates may overtake your ship. But after many days, maybe a ship comes back and it brings you the things that were obtained in trade for the grain. 
don't be so fearful that you don't take those risks. So it says, uh, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you, if you think, well, you know, if I throw my seed on the ground today, it might not rain for three weeks, and then I get nothing. Uh, the wind may blow away my seed as I'm, as I'm uh, sowing. I, that fear can be paralyzing. Um, and... I, I, I call it sometimes paralysis by analysis, and that's, that's where we can find ourselves. Well, so many things bad could happen. I could put this money into a, an investment, and then the companies in the investment could fail, and then I get nothing, and there's bankruptcy, or there's a recession, or there's um, you know, somebody hacks Wall Street, and then I get nothing. Yes, Dr. Edwards. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, that, that famous uh, trade-off between risk and reward. Um, and again, that comes down to prudence, I'd say. And does it make sense to take a great risk for what could only be a very small reward? So, you know, thinking about gambling, is, it, is, is gambling merely risk-taking? We're surrounded by risk. We can't escape it. Uh, gambling, I would I'd suggest this, that, that it's taking on risk merely for the excitement of the risk-taking, where the outcome is most likely to be monetary loss rather than gain. So if I'm sitting there on a stool in a casino in Las Vegas, and I'm plugging quarters in, or whatever they do now, I don't, maybe you swipe a card, I don't know. Plug a quarter in, pull the handle. Do I get anything? No. Plug in another quarter, pull the handle. Do I get anything? No. Well, the casino is just, I've walked through casinos before, and they're just fantastically decorated, and they, they uh, there's all this, you know, light and sound and glitz and, and glamour, apparently to, to this kind of thing and and by the way they they don't have any windows in these casinos because they don't want you to realize what time it is <laughs> uh, it's 24 7 people in there doing that so this is the casino is able to pay for this very expensive building because they are not giving you back as much as you're putting in to the machine you know they Plug in. I mean, that's why an education lottery raises money for education, because they're not providing a reward as much as they are taking in in lottery tickets, uh, lottery ticket sales. So, um, I did a uh, a project a number of years ago for a, a group in Oklahoma that w Oklahoma at the time was considering adopting an education lottery, 
And I pointed out some of the problems with this, which, among which are, it tends to be poorer people who disproportionately buy lottery tickets. And the, the gainers from that tend to be students in colleges, which tend to be middle class. Um, so it, it functionally worked as a transfer from the poor to the middle class. Now that doesn't by itself make it wrong, but it should at least cause us to step back and reevaluate what we're trying to accomplish here with, with this kind of project. But in any case, I, I'd say if, it's, if, if you're just throwing money out there and, and, and not uh, doing anything more than taking a risk for the sake of taking the risk, that would be gambling. An investment is something where you, you put the money in and there's a reasonable, reasonable opportunity there to gain something. Uh, you're devoting resources to acquiring an asset that's expected, reasonably expected to rise in value. It doesn't, wouldn't necessarily have to, it might not or uh, assist in enhancing our own productivity over time, which getting an education is a kind of investment. Now, suppose I invest in an education, I become a doctor or something, and then um, as I'm walking across the stage to get my medical degree after putting in countless amounts of dollars into getting this education, someone comes up with this artificial intelligence robot that can diagnose illness and treat people much better than a human being can. And now what's my education worth? You know, I've spent all this money on it and now it's, it's been rendered obsolete. Well, that can happen. Somebody in, in a few years might come up with a, a uh, robot professor that does a much better job, that has all the combined knowledge of all the, the greatest thinkers and can answer any question eloquently and accurately and so forth. I'm not terribly worried about that, but <laughs> um, given, given what I've seen on uh, those uh, online courses that they, they selected Paul Krugman to, to uh, to teach for them. Um, anyway, I digress. You could invest in a tool that makes you more productive. You could invest in our abilities, uh, whether that's formal education or just gaining experience over time in a workplace. Uh, you, you are making an investment um, in, in something that may make you better off later. Any of these involve risk. So Ecclesiastes is telling us here in its, uh, when it says, um, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're diversifying across several investments. Some may fail, some may do well. And because you don't know, have humility and recognize that you're not likely to be the world's greatest stock picker. And so have some, some recognition of what you know and what you don't know and, and diversify because of your, your ignorance. Is investing in the stock market gambling? I would say no because the stock market is allowing companies to raise funds from people who have saved and it gives them an opportunity to share in the value that the firm is creating. So you're tapping into the creative 
abilities of other people is investing in Bitcoin gambling. That's a little tougher, maybe, but I would say no, uh, because it's not unreasonable to expect that the value people place on this thing, even though it's a thing that's difficult for many of us to wrap our heads around, some kind of mathematical calculation that's being done by computers out in this cloud somewhere, and I, I can't really, but then how many of us understand how the Federal Reserve operates either, <laughs> right? <laughs> Including Janet Yellen. So um, I, if we don't, not knowing exactly what it is that makes Bitcoin valuable doesn't mean that it's not valuable. Um, I may not know why people put value on little rectangular pieces of paper with dead presidents on them, but people do value those things. Um, so the fact that there's risk does not mean that it's the same thing as playing a slot machine. And so I would not say you're gambling if you are investing in Bitcoin or even Dogecoin or something like that. Um, <laughs> Is, is um, insurance wrong? Believe it or not, people at one time thought that if you bought life insurance, you were committing a moral evil because you were putting a price on life if you bought life insurance. Um, and it, insurance is a fairly recent thing. Um, Benjamin Franklin came up with this uh, fire insurance company in the late 1700s. And uh, what, what, what exactly are, are you doing with insurance? Is, is, is this a lack of faith if you buy insurance? Are you, are you saying, I'm, I'm not confident that God's going to provide for me if I buy insurance? Um, and I, I would say, again, no, it's, it's a way to reduce particular risks. It's a means that has been provided to us for helping us to avoid serious, um, serious damage. Uh, you're paying someone else, typically a group of people, to take on a risk for you. Um, and so I, I would not say that there's a problem with Insurance. Can, now you could you could act imprudently with insurance. You could try to insure against every possible happenstance, and that would be um, uh, foolish. You you can fritter fritter away your resources in trying to insure against large and small uh, risks. And so again, we come back to that concept of prudence, that our, our responsibility is to be good stewards, and sometimes that means buying an insurance policy, sometimes that means uh, saving, and sometimes that means we pray and we trust God for an outcome because we are uh, limited in our abilities to, to handle um, risk. As far as profit and loss in a marketplace, uh, we see in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and we'll talk about that um, next week in more detail, that there's, uh, making a profit is, is praised. It's not 
it's not regarded as, as wrong. It's an increase in value over the resources we used to create something. And they give us information. If a business is making a loss, that's telling us something. It's telling us those resources would be better used somewhere else. If a business is making a profit, that's telling us something else. That means people want what they're producing and we can make uh, uh, wiser decisions by directing resources in that, in that, in that way. So if, to, to sum up, we're, when we look at a market, um, we're looking at a, a human-created means of providing uh, information that we can then act on, hopefully in wisdom, to, uh, to, to, uh, to be creative and to, to think God's thoughts after him. So I'll stop there. I think I'm out of time, so we'll pick up with more of this uh, next week. And um, if you have questions, please, if, if you could bring them next week, and I'll, I'll um, try to address questions either next week or the week after, and um, maybe, maybe clear up any, anything that I've left unclear. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for providing us with your wisdom and with the institutions around us, um, like families and uh, civil magistrates and um, uh, even marketplaces that provide us with uh, the knowledge that we will need to make good decisions and guidance. We pray that you will help us to go from here uh, thinking more carefully about uh, how that can um, produce good for not only ourselves, but for um, those within our families and churches and in the world at large. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.